This special monthly UBU episode on hashtag Black Mental Health is sponsored by Janta Neuroscience and supported by the Painted Brain, a California peer-run organization. Hey, Courtney, how are you doing? Hi, Karis, how are you? I am so glad that we're having this conversation with you today. Um, And I'm just getting to know you. So this is really exciting. And I know you in relation to Janssen Neuroscience. And that's all I'm going to say, because I want you to tell us a little bit about your story and your journey. Wow. Well, well, thank you. I guess, you know, I'll start a little bit at the beginning. and, And thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I really love the great work that you do and and the service that you provide informing those who need it most. But so as I think about my journey, first, I'd be remiss if I didn't start with kind of my parents. I'm the youngest uh, of five children. I grew up in a Christian-based family where my mom and dad were both entrepreneurs. They they ran a number, owned a number of businesses, Uh, but also my father served in politics in the state of Connecticut for about 10 years. And so the values that my parents instilled in me and my uh, brothers and sisters, a a lot of it revolved around, you know, service, giving back to others. And that has led me throughout my my life. And so I'm a husband, my wife and I have been married more than 30 years. We have four children. And during that time, I've been coach, dad, you know, community uh, leader. I went to West Point. I have an engineering degree, you know, and as part of my education, going to a military academy, you you also have a commitment to serve on active duty uh, after. So I served in the army and I came out of the army after serving in Operation Desert Storm, Desert Shield in the early 90s. And then that's where I started my career with Johnson & Johnson. And I've been with Johnson & Johnson now uh, for uh, 30 years. And uh, I've had a variety of roles uh, in J&J, in supply chain and procurement, contract manufacturing, sales, marketing, all the way to the current role that I have today as the president of Janssen Neuroscience, which is our business that focuses on brain health, mental health, and healing minds and bodies to where we can restore hope for better lives. The last piece that I'll say about me is is really, you know, it gets back to that service connectivity. I'm very active in the communities in which I live and work. I'm an ordained deacon. I serve on four nonprofit boards, uh, two of which that support veterans. Uh, so again, my service in the military, I also want to make sure I give back uh, to the veteran community, but also the other boards are focused on youth and mm-hmm. educating our next generation of leaders, helping them with scholarships, mentorships, 
things of that nature. So, wow. so that's the person who I am. That's a lot of person, hopefully. Courtney. That's a lot of person. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that's really interesting to hear your story. There's so many um, areas of intersect, of course, is that you know, my father was in the military and um, he was in the army. He served in the Signal Corps. He was a lifer, <laughs> if you will. Oh, yes. You know, he served in uh, two wars as well. He served both in Korea and in Vietnam and then wow. retired when I was um, in high school, actually. Yeah. So um, I'm a military brat. I know that's the term. I don't really like the term. Global nomad is the term I prefer. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, really, um, we can talk a bit about maybe the intersection of, of mental health and, and the military uh, community. But before we get there, I'm really interested in you know, you talked about the different roles that you've had at Johnson and Johnson that now you're at Janssen Neuroscience as the, the president. And we were talking briefly, there are not a lot of black leaders kind of in um, this area. So um, how did you like get into this position in an industry that, you know, you just don't see a lot of diversity in this way? Yeah. No, thank you. Uh, so first of all, like I said, I've been with J&J for 30 years. Uh, I've, you know, had the privilege and fortune to work in a number of different roles and been fortunate to have performed well in those roles. So performance is a big piece, right? The other thing that I would say is because of some of my passion and purpose, service-driven you know, I'll call it values that I have. Uh, I really wanted to be in this business in particular in neuroscience. So, and why I'll, I'll share with you some personal details. You know, my dad, who I mentioned, great entrepreneur, community service leader. Unfortunately, when my dad passed, he, he passed uh, with dementia. And, you know, as I saw, you know, my hero, the person who always, saw everything half full than half empty and was a great innovator. Um, I saw his life change like that uh, with dementia. And it was there where I saw different diseases of the brain and central nervous system, mental health disorders. Uh, I have family members that have serious mental illnesses throughout my family and the stigma associated with those, the things you grew up with not talking about. As I grew older and I became part of this industry, I wanted to be a part of the change. So fortunately, many of the leaders uh, that I've had the privilege to work with in J&J, you know, I told them about my aspirations of where I'd like to be and particularly the business uh, that I'd like to lead. And you know, those things worked out for me. And that has helped me get into this space. One, because it's an area where I felt like I wanted to make a difference and hopefully leave a legacy where I can make a difference in, in, in an area that needs so much more help. And then also to, like I said, performing well, you know, is another piece added to that too. Yeah. Wow. Wow. So interesting. Um, my mother also passed away at a very early age of uh, dementia, as well as did my 
grandmother, which especially for me becomes concerning around, you know, the maybe possible genetic implications, the the gender implications, et cetera. So um, the fact that, you know, that's what spurred you to kind of get into this work is really very heartfelt, you know? Yeah. 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 And you're exactly right. Like one minute, it's the person, you know, and the next minute, it's not really that same person. It's very yeah. sad. It's very sad. Well, and, yeah. and, and that's the thing, you know, and I, I feel very fortunate, you know, within Janssen Neuroscience, I will tell you, you know, and everybody says this, we've got the greatest people we've got, but the special sauce of our business is I would say 80% of the people in my company are here because they specifically want to be here for a reason like mine, like we all have our stories where we want to make a difference. And it's there that I feel like people are fueled with like that extra wanting to go that extra mile, right? So when there's an obstacle or where there's, oh, no, you can't, right? They're going to be more creative. They're going to be more willing to, you know, figure out how do we get to the point where we can, you know, create a better opportunity for those who need us most, you know, I often talk about being in the hope business as well, because, you know, oftentimes when you think of those living with serious mental illnesses, you, you know, they get to a point sometimes where they feel like they have no hope. And, you know, we need to change that um, because that, that's not true and I'm not going to buy into that. And so, you know, it's that piece where we want to empower people. Uh, we want to provide them opportunities for better lives. Wow, that's great. Yes, and you're exactly right about the the no hope. And you know, thank you for saying that that's not allowable. That there's going to be hope. That was a big, big uh, struggle. And uh, my my therapist used to say, "I'm going to hold the hope to for you." When I used to lose hope, I never knew what the heck that meant. I'm like, "Go ahead, hold yeah. that hope." I really don't know what that means, but it did mean something. And it was kind of that string that would keep me attached when I really lost hope. A lot of uh, things also, you know, we want to talk a little bit about um, sort of the political and social events that shape your approach on how Janssen neuroscience relates to patients and providers of color. So can you talk a little bit about that from your perspective? Yes. So when, you know, when you think about the environment that exists uh, for patients of color and we talk about, you know, healthcare disparities, social determinants of health and things of that nature, they're real, right? I mean, they, we see it day in and day out in the Black community in particular, you know, and as a Black professional myself, you know, I, I feel like I have a, a responsibility to make a difference there. And so when, you know, when I look at what I've seen, what I've learned and what I've experienced personally as a lived experience too, you see things that aren't right. And fortunately, as a leader, you know, in a, in a corporation and in a business uh, where I can help influence change and, and make a difference, that is where I'm dedicated to, to do that. So, you know, when I think about the Black community, you know, some of the statistics that continue to startle me, right, is, you know, first of all, mental health disorders, you know, many of them are being treated in our judicial system uh, and in our jails and prisons. You know, 40% of inmates, first of all, are Black Americans, right? And, you know, it's estimated that 20 
90% of all inmates in county and city jails in our state prisons have a serious mental illness, right? So there is a large population that quickly goes, in, unfortunately, into, because maybe of their health condition, into uh, the jails and prison systems, and then that's where they're being treated. So it's things of that nature that I see that we need to change, right? We, we need to make a big difference there. The other thing is just in the communities in which we live and work, right? The number of healthcare professionals that look like you and I, you know, when I'm looking for a physician or someone who can relate to my story, my background, they're not enough, right? So we need to do more to, you know, that's why I say I dedicate a big portion of my time to educating the next generation of doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, PAs, psychiatrists, psychologists, you name it. And I want them to look like me, right? Because I think then they will better understand maybe some of the reasons why I do what I do or why I don't do certain things, why I may have mistrust that I, I also will create a higher degree of trust when I know they can relate to me versus maybe somebody else who can. And, And so that's who I want that's treating me that can help me and my road to recovery and in my road to self-actualization and being all that I can be. Yeah, I really, I really love that. I think it's so important, you know, uh, if, if that's important for the person who's receiving services to have somebody who looks like them um, be, you know, the provider, one of the providers, they're just not enough. I think it's 4% are African-American, maybe a little bit more or less are Latino. So we really have a dearth of folks uh, to go around, if you will, compared to the population. Sure. So um, what are some of the other things that you think... Um, and as a black leader in neuroscience, sort of what is your perspective on what needs to be done differently to achieve equity in mental health care for individuals? Well, so I, I, I think it's three things. Well, you know, first, I would say, you know, education and awareness. We need to make sure that we're increasing the level of education. We're empowering individuals, right, so that they know more about the different conditions the different treatment options, right? And, you know, you're hearing from a president of a pharmaceutical company who's going to say every option is not a pharmaceutical. There are other holistic solutions. There are other things that you could do from a wellness, from a diet, from a all of those type of things that people need to be informed about that lead to better care, better self-care for themselves. So education, I would say first, we need, and, and when you think about education, it's It starts in the schools, right? And making sure that, you know, the schools that we have for our youth and in our communities are appropriate and that they've got all of the resources that they need to make sure that we're educating our students very well. And we know that in certain communities, they may not have all of the resources, they may not have the quality that they need. And I love our teachers, right? But we need to do more for them. So education all the way from childhood but also to us in adulthood. And we've got to be continuous learners. You know, when you think about the availability of information, just by Googling and going online, don't always believe the first thing you see online, right? Because there is misinformation that's out there, but we should 
we should be well-informed, right? And we need to make sure that we can make our own choices and that's where education. Uh, the other piece is economic empowerment. You know, if I look back and in particular over these last 20, 24 months, you know, and back in 2020, you know, at the height of the pandemic and also the racism and social justice issues that we saw unfolding on TV every single day, right, that brought us all back to kind of understanding, you know, I think about as a kid, you know, and I wrote about this within my company, I said, you know, when I was growing up, we always used to drive to Georgia, my family, we'd get in the car, we'd leave at like five o'clock at night, we'd pack all of this food. And, you know, I never really thought about like, well, why did we leave at night? Why were we like driving through in the dark? My dad would let us stop for 2.5 minutes, you know, to go to the bathroom and, you know, get back in the car. Yeah. You know, and, it, and, it, and it wasn't, my dad would always say, we need to make time to get there. It wasn't about time, right? It was about, he didn't want to be stopped. He didn't want to be racially profiled. There were only certain places we could stop. You know, all of that stuff where me as a kid, I was like oblivious to that until I became educated and mm-hmm. kind of recognized and put two and two together around why those things. So, so again, but economic empowerment to make sure that we're supporting businesses and the communities in which our people live and work, right? And that we're giving back and people are having the ability to have a living wage, right? You know, minimum wage isn't a living wage. People can have multiple jobs and still be, you know, living at a poverty level. And so we need to do more there. And and those statistics more adversely affect people of color and in particular black community, Hispanic community. So we need to do more to invest uh, in our communities so that we can create better equity. And then I would say the, the last piece is around you know, the area being in healthcare, I would say creating greater equity in, in healthcare. And like mm-hmm. I already said before, it's, you know, the treaters, the providers, the pharmacists, you know, all of those folks making sure that we've got good diversity uh, and representation there. But also the other piece is when you think about the choices and healthcare options and being able to access care, you know, in certain communities, you don't get the same choices, the same medications, the same food, you know, I mean, we could get into food desert, we can get into all of those things. You don't, you don't have the same access that others do, maybe just two, three, four, five miles over in another community. Right. The the insurance programs, the, all of the different uh, programs that are out there to provide greater, you know, healthcare uh, greater choice, better affordability. You know, what are we doing on mm-hmm. on our part to make sure that you know medicines are more affordable, treatment, surgeries, you name it, are more affordable and available to those who need them. So it's all of those things that need to be improved. There's not one silver bullet that's going to fix it. All of us need to do our part. 
Wow. I mean, you really hit on some incredibly powerful uh, tactics there. And um, when you were talking about uh, many of them relate to social determinants of health, of course, like, you know, the economic empowerment, the education, so you have the information and awareness, and then also the equity in healthcare. And, you know, I do a lot in the, in the peer workforce as well. And I've been asking myself, you know, are we sure that we have a diverse, a diverse peer workforce? I think we think we do, but we actually don't know. <laughs> and I think it's really important for us to have, uh, you know, uh, peer folks, peer supporters, providers, you know, family advocates, things like that, who also look like us uh, amongst the providers and advocates out there. So uh, this is a really, really important topic. And, you know, you have to do some work in this area. It's great to have the idea. So now yeah. what, what do you want your legacy to be once you've move beyond this role. You're, you're here. Yay. Wow. Wow. <laughs> I'm yeah. not trying to shuffle you along, but no. you know, <laughs> yeah. What's your, what do you want your legacy to be? Yeah. I, I want my legacy to be known around people's lives that have been changed. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's not about dollars and cents. You know, my, my legacy isn't going to be, you know, how financially successful our company is. It, it's really going to be around lives changed, right. And how we impact people's lives, whether they're, you know, older, middle-aged, their youth just starting, right? I want to have an impact in all of those areas. And I want to think about the difference that I can make. And, you know, as I shared earlier in my journey, I have this special attachment to wanting to make a difference in the lives of our youth. I see them as, you know, the next generation of leaders. They're the ones who can change and improve many of the things that, May I may not be able to see in my lifetime, but I'm optimistic my kids, you know, or others like, you know, like them that they can and will. And so I want to be able to influence and provide them with the tools, provide them with the environment where they have a level playing field, where they feel like whatever is possible is truly possible and that they don't, you know, feel like there are certain obstacles of what they can and can't do, you know, specifically. Janssen Neuroscience. And, you know, uh, Karis, you you had the opportunity to get some exposure to a program that we're working on in your organization. We're partnering with you on the West Coast, right, where we've created something we call the Community Health Equity Alliance. And we established this to help prioritize community-informed solutions to improve trusted delivery and pursuit of equitable, serious mental illness care, right? Mm -hmm. At the local level, at the local level, not at this broad, you know, country, global, all of that, like at the local level, because we know that's where it happens, right? Mm -hmm. That's where change happens. And so with this initiative, you know, we've tried to take a fairly unique approach of bringing together a coalition of partners who have like interests to where we've all focused in on and saying we want to make a difference in the communities where we work, where we live, where people need us the most, where we see the highest degree of disparity and disadvantage that maybe not because of some person's own condition, but because of societal factors and environmental factors factors that are stacked up against them. It's there where we're going to look to drive change. And, you know, we want to provide solutions. And in particular, in this area of mental illness, 
which often is stigmatized. It often doesn't have the level of parity and visibility that other disease states have. You know, it's the one nobody talks about all the way up through our government, you know, through everywhere, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But it's often left behind. And if there's one thing that I would say through the pandemic that I've kind of somewhat seen as a little bit of a positive, I have seen a bit more of a movement, right? Of people talking more openly about their mental health, mental wellness, you know, my kids, my kids' friends are like, hey, on Instagram, I'm going to take a mental health break today. I I need to do a such and such, you know, because I'm going to protect my, I love hearing people focused on mental health and wellness, Mm -hmm. talking more openly about it. You know what? I need more help. I need to talk to somebody who can help me with this issue. And so that is one thing because we know that the pressures that the pandemic has brought has only exacerbated depression and many of these other things yeah. uh, that lead to mental health disorders, you know, and, and heightened issues that may cause relapse or things of that nature. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Yeah, yeah. So I can't thank you enough for explaining um, the coalition and, you know, my, my little teeny tiny part in it, but uh, uh, hopefully to be um being able to make that difference, especially around um, the areas of disparities that are that are no fault of the person. I think that's so important to hear in mental health because sometimes people still see both mental health and substance use as, you know, an individual kind of failing and it's not. Um, And, you know, even as we're working on our recovery, I always say, well, you know, is it enough to get better, but then to go back into a society in which it will continually make me sick? That doesn't really make a lot of sense in my head. So this idea of pulling together coalitions, um, especially at the community level, to identify community responses that are coming from that community to shore up their mental health and wellness and the work we're hoping to do, you know, through the podcast and creating um, resources that that are done kind of with a collective group. So it's peers and peers working with providers to think about what might California need, you know, what might we need in the rural areas of California, in the urban areas of California, um, you know, specifically for, you know, as I call it, hashtag black mental health. So what is it we're going to need? And we're going to talk about that and, and not just talk about it. A podcast is just this one way sort of, Ooh, I get to listen to it, but we're also going to create things, hopefully that, that are tangible things that people can use and do things with so that they and maybe have this plan about, mm, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a mental health break. I'm going to post a picture of me on Instagram saying, hey, I'm taking a mental health break. What are you doing? Show me what you're doing right. and just start this movement. So I'm so excited to be a part of this. And thank you for that. <laughs> and well, that they're going to do more and more. Yeah. Yeah. I, I applaud what you're doing. It is making a huge difference, right? The message that you're doing, you know, and the example that you said, which frees up and allows other people to role model the behavior that they see, you know, great leaders like yourself doing, right? You know, and as you share your story, which becomes very relatable to others, you know, and all of us where we have different things that we, as we share and become more open and even sometimes more vulnerable, you know, as we share those stories. But then because of that, we free up somebody else 
right? To say, hey, I'm, I'm not so different. I'm not yeah. so alone yeah. here. And we give them an opportunity. So thank you for that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's really, really very powerful. And, you know, I think about that, too, is that sometimes when I'm sharing my story, I've had people contact me and say, are there other people like you? Thinking that I'm like the only person out there with this lived experience of a mental health. You're the, you you're the unicorn. Be. I'm a unicorn. Right. But what I, you know, black unicorns, they're, they're rare, but you know what? They're not really rare. They're just kind of not known. And yeah. that's the other beauty of doing podcasts and YouTube videos and all these things on social media is we start to be able to put that face of color with these conversations. So yeah. can you can you also talk a little bit about um, the importance of the focus on mental health and wellness for Black veterans and their family, especially, you know, from your personal experience? Because I think, again, as we're thinking about whole health and wellness for the Black community, we're not monolithic. And some of us come from, like me, I'm born and bred, you know, military because my father was in the military. So how do you think about that and um, the importance of focusing on that? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think it's hugely important. Uh, the military, one, because I serve myself. Um, so I have even a cl closer affinity, right, um, to the veteran community, uh, those who serve on active duty, the sacrifice that they make, you know, I, when I think about people on deployments and their families, we need to make sure we're wrapping our arms around them and supporting them because uh, they do so much on behalf of others, right? They often feel they have this calling uh, to, to, to serve our country, uh, to serve us. So from that standpoint, uh, we, we owe them uh, a lot back. Now, the other thing is, unfortunately, there are a number of startling statistics where our veterans, due to the nature of the type of work that they do, uh, they often come back with, especially those who may have deployed, and, and if they were in, you know, a combat situation, you know, they come back with both visible and invisible wounds of sometimes of that service. And often the invisible wounds are the ones that don't go treated. So can you tell me a little bit about some of the veteran statistics, some of the data that you know about? Sure, Karis. And as a veteran myself, this is something that really resonates with me because unfortunately veterans over-index in mental illness. And in particular, when we look at Black veterans specifically, there are even more areas that need work and, and need support. 30% of active duty reserve and military personnel that deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan have a mental illness condition that requires treatment. That's more than 730,000 men and women who are experiencing either some major depressive disorder or post-traumatic stress disorder. I mean, it's astounding, those numbers. And when you think about it, less than 50% of them receive any type of mental health treatment. So there's so much more work to be done. You know, and then uh, sadly, we continue to still hear the statistics of more than 22 veterans dying by suicide each and every day. Uh, it really is a reason why we have to galvanize an effort across our country to make sure we're doing more to address these statistics. And then further, Karis, when you think about kind of where this also bears out, 
from a homelessness point of view, more than you know, one third of homeless people are veterans. And when you think about that, also getting into that veteran statistic, a third of them are black veterans. So as a black person myself, when I hear about these type of statistics, when I think about the impact that we need to make, I'm even more compelled to want to figure out how I can help do my part to make a difference. Wow, those are really um, startling statistics. And especially when we think about, um, you know, hashtag Black mental health and the Black, or, uh, the black community, uh, that intersection of veterans and African-Americans is so important to put into the mix and, and talk about it and address those issues. Uh, thanks for all of that information. Great, Karis. And, and that's why we also need to do more with education and awareness uh, in our communities. And that's why the programs uh, that you offer, the information you provide is so critical because, again, at the Black community, more than 63% of Black people believe that mental health conditions are a sign of weakness. Now, hopefully, one of the things that I've seen and heard more is that during the pandemic, people seem to become more open to sharing their concerns around their needs for mental health and wellness. And I hope we can continue that trend. Yeah, that is just um, amazing. And what I do is uh, two snaps up, claps, and, um, you know, all that kind of, you know, thumbs up, all those things that people can't see um, to be able to say, I am like, so with that, you know, one of the things I didn't even recognize until I was much older was that um, I didn't talk to my father for years after he came back from the Vietnam War. I would just say, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, okay, whatever, yeah, uh-huh, like that. That would be how I talked to my dad until yeah. one day my father was like, uh, yeah, no, that's not respectful and we're not going to have that anymore. <laughs> and uh, yeah. you had best open your mouth, you know, that kind of dad voice, right? Yes. Um, and I've written about this publicly, so I'm not saying any, I'm not outing anything about my relationship my, with my father that isn't known. So um, one of the uh, things, though, that when he said that to me, I was struck. I was like, why don't I talk to my father? And I realized that when he left for the Vietnam War, there were enough TV and media that I knew where he was going, even though I couldn't articulate it. And then when he, and there was all this fear the whole time he was gone. And when he came back, I was so afraid that I would, I, I, I was angry. <laughs> I was angry, like, well, you know, separation anxiety, the max. And then I was afraid. And so I decided that I had to distance myself from him to protect myself, but I didn't even know I was doing that. Yeah. Imagine if, if there had been more conversation about what to expect when somebody's going away and how to support that family member and my mom and my brother and myself. And um, so I'm, you know, really, really glad that, that there's more of a focus. And of course we need more on veterans and their families um, to ensure that, you know, they too can benefit from um, having the things they need to have their best lives. So thank you. Thank you so much for everything that you do. I'm so happy we had this conversation. Hashtag Black Mental Health. Yes. Thank you. Well, thank you too, Karis. Like I said, uh, you know, I applaud the great work that you do, the great support and service that you do on behalf of not just Black Americans and the communities uh, which we are closely 
aligned to, but, you know, the broader community as a whole, you know, as we talked about education and empowerment and creating greater degree of equity, a lot of that is just getting the word out, right? Uh, And helping people to be better informed, better empowered to make their decisions. And you're doing that on, on the front line every day. So thank you for having me on the program. Uh, And I certainly look forward to learning more from you. As I listen to your podcast, I have a a long drive to work. I I listen to your podcast uh, and and I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you again. And just a reminder to folks that on the fourth uh, Tuesday of every month, it is UBU pod for hashtag Black Mental Health. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.